0: These are the three levels where we play, Like, So there's, there has to be an awesome creator experience. There has to be a great audience experience. So you have to be able to share things well, and it has to be a superior sharing uh, document. And then there has to be a, something that connects everyone together. So you have to learn collectively. If you don't have other people creating cool products, this platform will probably die out, right? Just like with Twitter. Twitter doesn't survive on, on pac M.
1: Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. Today we have a fun one with Umberto Pereira, the founder and CEO of Rose. Rose has been a longtime sponsor of Not Boring. I think it was actually the most popular sponsorship that we ever did. It had something like a 12% click-through rate on our ad. The product resonated deeply with the audience. You'll learn more about it today, but essentially Rose gives you the power of a spreadsheet combined with all the integrations you'd expect from a bunch of different data sources. You could build a portfolio tracker, track all of your mentions on Twitter. There's just so much that you can do within Rose. You should go check it out for yourself at rose.com. And speaking of powerful products, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, the sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders, FTX US. FTX is eating the financial world. It started as the best trading platform for crypto professionals, but has expanded into a whole suite of products. Within the FTX app, you can buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, you can trade NFTs with no fees, and now you can buy and sell stocks. If it's not already, we think the FTX app will become your finance super app. It does all of this with no to low fees, easy withdrawals, and best-in-class security. Download the FTX app today using the link in the show notes or head to the app store and use code not boring, all one word, and you'll get free crypto when you trade your first $10. Thanks to FTX for sponsoring all of season two of Not Boring Founders, and making conversations like today's with Umberto Pereira of Rose possible.
2: Welcome to Not Boring Founders. Hi, there. So I'm gonna start with the, the question that I always kick off with, which is what the world looks like in a decade if you're wildly successful with what you're doing at
0: Rose. Awesome. Well, if we are super successful uh, at Rose, I think, uh, you know, in a decade, people will be using spreadsheets in a much better way. So spreadsheets will be prettier and much
2: more data-read. So start with what Rose is today and then how you see it evolving over
0: the next decade. Perfect. So uh, already Rose is a spreadsheet, which is prettier and, and it is a lot more connected to data. It's it's already like that today. So right off the bat, you, you get inside our product, And you will see uh, a Google Sheets-like interface with, with, with some differences, right? One of the differences is that you can stack different tables and charts, unlike, you know, typical spreadsheets where you have data on uh, charts on top of data, and it's a mess to find anything, and you can share it much easily. We generate a web page from, from a link, and you can access that, share it with your customers or colleagues and and your analysis, just sell themselves. So I think that this is already there today. And we also help you in building this spreadsheet in connecting to your data, data from, you know, Google Analytics, from your ads, from your social media. Uh, A lot of different kinds of data and reports uh, are what our users are building. This is today.
2: Yeah. And and I'm a user and obviously you guys have uh, sponsored the newsletter before. And so I've been using kind of since then, and it really is, I mean, I I don't know how to bring those data sources into Excel or or Google Sheets. I'm not nearly sophisticated enough to do that, but makes it so, so, so simple. Give a picture for people of how they can use it.
0: Yeah. The most successful users are in the report. So people are essentially grabbing data from multiple sources, generating their business and marketing reports uh, so that they can communicate them to their teams and take better decisions. Right. And uh, we did this reporting use case. We see a lot of users around more. So again, analytics, your website analytics, your business analytics, uh, uh, a lot of social media accounts, so tracking the number of followers, tracking the the news, where you're on, et cetera, and then tracking ad spend, the performance of your website and a lot more and more things. But essentially it really is uh, a lot of marketing stuff, uh, uh, a lot of business stuff. And then we have also people using it personally for a wide range of things. I think one of the most successful, ones, which is not surprising at all, is crypto. So we have data sources like Alpha Vantage and, and you can, you know, check the price of some crypto assets and you can do your crypto portfolios. There's a bunch of people who created these, these public spreadsheets on our community, where you can just manage your portfolio. Which was a lot more
2: fun to look at a few weeks ago than it is right now. But, but definitely optimistic.
0: I guess, I guess probably many people just buy on the tip or or something. Crypto is is famous for having a lot of contrarian thinkers. And this probably means that there's some people uh, doing some pretty smart moves right now. Uh, I I wouldn't know. I, I'm not one of the smart people or the crypto people, but 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 for sure it must be used for, for that too.
2: One of the themes that I've written about in not boring is this idea that that Excel will never die, that it's this like Lindy software that as people get trained on it and as more people use it, it just gets more and more and more powerful and it's almost become its own like kind of language and they're extending it in such ways that, that it can become kind of its own programming language for for normal people and for finance people. Do you think of Excel and Google Sheets as your competition, or are you borrowing
0: the interface, but then the competition is like Looker or somebody else like that? No, we do think it's, it's Google Sheets and Excel for only one reason, the users, right? And the way we, we encode uh, what users are looking for in a spreadsheets is they, they are looking for something which they can use every day. And you know, Looker is just not the, uh, a, a software which you will open up on a web to do some computation every day, right? Or yeah. 10 times a day and Excel leads, right? And Excel and Google Sheets and and, and hopefully roles will live on your uh, favorite tabs and they will live on your docs of your computer, et cetera. And so it will become a, a, a tool for your everyday thoughts and your everyday uh, analysis of lists and, and, and business plans, etc. So I think that this is the major thing. So we do consider ourselves to be a, a competitor. And also we see that Google Sheets and, and Excel really became big the, because they established a standard for these languages, which you are talking about. And and the language is just a means for giving more power to, to people, right? So what kinds of things really give more power to people? So in the, in the old days, you only had programming. So if you programmed, you were powerful, so to speak, you could create your own software and then we had a spreadsheet and now we have a bunch of low code, no code, which some of them are having more uh, growth, some of them less, but. Google Sheets and Excel. So the spreadsheet standard is still the most spoken empowering language. So it's, it's, it's around 1 billion users of that. And, and it's really, it's really compelling. Uh,
2: I had Hamjad Masad from Replit on the other day, and we, we talked about this idea of coding kind of becoming this thing that only the most technical people in the world could do. And there's a small handful of people who knew how to, knew how to do it. And then over time, there's been this arc towards like, now I can use rows and do things that the best programmer 50 years ago couldn't have done with a computer. How do you see all of that converging to make anybody be able to make computers do what they want and get the data that they want?
0: The way I see it, there's always some merging of layers of the stack. And then there's new, new layers appearing all the time. And I think maybe I'll propose an analogy of an airplane, right? And then maybe in the past, the Wright brothers could create themselves a full airplane and ride it into everything. And right now, The pilots on most planes don't build airplanes. And and even I I would probably venture saying that maybe it's absurd, but there's no single person who can rebuild a Boeing, right? You have to have all of these stacks of, of complex technologies to actually be able to maximize whatever you're trying to achieve. I think it's software engineering. It's increasingly looking like that. So you have a bunch of very, very smart people who can actually go into kind of any technology. But for them to be very productive, they specialize back-end versus versus front-end. And now we have some subsections like reliability engineering, quality assurance, UX design, like a lot of stack. And so to build the main trunk of a very scalable business, you will probably need a bunch of these different people. But I think that there is a a second side to every business, which is the marketing, right? And marketing does not operate at the speed of engineering, right? It can't operate. Like you, you need to acquire users every day. And so you need a set of tools, which, where you can analyze and take decisions every day faster. And we see actually spreadsheets to be this, this super speed, right? It's kind of like programming in the super speed. Obviously you can't do every little thing you can do in programming, but increasingly, I think you will be able to do more and more and more. Again, the GPT-3 and all of these algorithms are pushing what machines can do uh, for us. So there's that, a nice interplay here between, I think, engineering, automation, and, and, and creativity and decision-making.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. There are things that I do now that I just wouldn't have done before. And so I think I can be creative, have data at my fingertips in a way that I just wouldn't have been able to before using tools like Rose. I'm going to go back to the decade question. What will I be able to do in a decade? Like if the product roadmap just goes kind of perfect. Right now I can pull in data from all sorts of sources. I can track my, my Twitter followers. I can see how the newsletter's doing, like all of those types of things. What is the level do you think that you can be able to, or maybe it's, you know, take it past a decade, like, what is the max that you, that a normal user like me would be able to do with the spreadsheet kind of interface?
0: Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things. I think the most exciting one for me is just the marketplace of things which you can build on top of a spreadsheet. So if you consider that it is a creative action to build, then, you know, sharing this code, sharing this knowledge. And the components that, that go with it will be, I think the most beneficial thing for everyone and consequently to the business, right? Everything, which I think benefits humanity eventually becomes a pretty nice thing for it to take a minor cut off. And so we started out by, by building these communities, so roves.com slash community, where you can see other people's spreadsheets, and then uh, you can duplicate them back into your account, kind of like a GitHub for spreadsheets. And it's working pretty nicely. We have. Many spreadsheets being that there are some funkier than, than others, others a bit more practical. And we see that in the future, in 10 years, we would have that for every single part of the stack. Meaning you would be able to create your own packy uh, function and maybe your packy function grabs some crypto thing and, and does a certain thing, right? The left or right of a concatenate of a VLOOKUP or something weird. And you'd brand that function, right? And you'd put it out there and everyone who types equals back, you would, would see the result of your function, right? And you would get some credits for using it. And so maybe this would latch on to some of the crypto ideas out there and, and you would be able to participate in the economic value of building spreadsheets and getting value to, the, to them, right? And the other thing would be data itself, right? We know that there are some pretty big providers of a few objects uh, in the world, like maps and places, right? It's a pretty big business and then we also have companies and linkedin and and a lot of stuff around that and and people as well right and people's a bit more private uh, uh, environment even though linkedin also has a bunch of people stuff and then particular things like twitter following accounts there's also social component of of everything else i think will be rather more niche environments uh, for data right you will be able to create your own Custom tables about the cool companies you follow, about the cool crypto products you do, about your posts, et cetera. And so as you evolve and as we start creating bigger niches of games, et cetera, I think people will be sharing these data sets and, and we will provide you a place for you to put your super nice custom tables and people will use your data and you will also get attribution and, and and maybe you will get money with that. So this is the the thing that I'm most excited about is that in 10 years time, not only building the capability, I think the capability. We could build it fast in a couple of months, but actually establishing ourselves as this market of not only spreadsheets but also functions and data, I think this is the thing that I'm more looking forward to. Yeah. Do you want more ideas? No,
2: I mean for, for right now, this is, this is perfect. It's it's interesting because I think you and Amjad both probably come at the crypto thing from a similar-ish angle, where it's like, oh, this might be interesting for like this one use case. And in both of in both of your answers, that use case is how do you enable these like kind of micro things to happen where I create a function and then I get a little bit of payment kind of every time something like that happens, I guess it makes the, the marketplace more fluid. How do you see something like that working?
0: I, I think stands at the crossroads of all of these topics of, you know, engineering being very hard and people being smart. You see smart people everywhere. Like I I, I am an engineer, but I'm, I'm a Louse engineer. Like I did electrical engineering, but I, I very quickly, I realized I suck at it. So like, fuck, but I still have some ideas and so I, 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 I need to do something with those ideas. And I found that there are technologies which empower you, right? And, and I think that if you want to create a function and coin that function and get your own vanity function, right, we have to provide you a way for you to know that it is working, how many people use it. So there has to be an analytics stack for you to understand the use such so that you can prove on it. And you will also have to credit you and provide you with some safety that, that it is indeed yours. That part of the, the safety and the accounting, the ledger. I think makes perfect sense in the crypto world, right? This is why they created this. And then perhaps we can also do the parallelism because there's not, never been a super successful programming language that was closed source, right? Right. Uh, Java and Python and and JavaScript, all of those are uh, very open. And so maybe we'd even let you take your function out and be used in other components elsewhere, right? And because we put it in some sort of a blockchain and blockchain is public for everyone to see everyone would be able to see no no actually that packm function i i might use it in my new application and therefore we would have the incentive of giving you the powers that you elsewhere right and the faster we run the better ideas we have the more people will create in ours versus create functions for for other other systems so i think that it, it would work on a creational level you just type in the function you type in a a large function, and then you just say, this maps to paki m function or, or whatever you want to call it. We already actually created this in, in a hackathon. Uh, we have this prototype, but then how you ship this to the, to, to the public, how you then account for it, et cetera, These are the tricky things which we, which we haven't uh, figured out and it's not a priority for, for May, 2022, this is what I can tell you.
2: That sounds fair. I mean, it does seem super cool though.
0: It seems like one of those
2: things, too, that as a newer company competing with incumbents like Microsoft and Google, which is the thing that every VC is like, well, you know, what if Microsoft and Google does this? They already do this. This is one of their most famous and popular products or other spreadsheet products. What are the advantages to being a startup competing with them? And then, like, what are some of the more difficult parts about being a startup competing with them? Well,
0: I'll start with the difficult part, right? They are quite good products. You know, they have been built by some of the best engineering minds out there and by lots of them too, you know, at some point, Microsoft had many hundreds, thousands of engineers working on translating Excel to, to Excel, 365 to two web version, right. And we are, you know, 60, 60 people <laughs> throughout Europe and the UN and elsewhere trying to build this thing. And we do multiple functions and wear m- multiple hats. I think one of them is the feeling of competing with the best, right? This, we feel it every day. Yeah. The bar is really high and users are used to uh service level that is tremendous. And I think that this explains why we are a five-year company. We spent the first four years in mm-hmm. our head against the wall, just trying to make it right. So I think right now we can proudly or arrogantly, depending on, on the angle, mm-hmm. say that we really understand spreadsheets. We at Rose really, I think we understand it as well as most people in Microsoft or Google understand it. That's been super hard. And the fact that they are included in a suite uh, of of products, that also uh, is a competitive disadvantage, right? When you sign up to Google Mail, as maybe most companies do, you also get Google Sheets for free, right?
2: Uh, Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you compete with that? Or like very tactically, like what are the things that you do when you're talking to potential customers who are like, oh, I get most of this for free anyway, and now you're asking me to pay for it?
0: Well, uh, I think this was more of a question 10 years ago is the competitor. I think people right now are very used to uh, multiple applications and multiple systems for kind of the same things. People have tried out multiple email clients like Gmail is free and people still use Superhuman for email and, and, and they use multiple refined product sets for different things. It helps to have interplay. So you can actually import your Google Sheets uh, uh, into into rows directly from the cells, right? You, I want just that data in here and, and this works well. And I think that it boils down to us solving a problem that you cannot solve in Google Sheets uh, and Microsoft Excel, right? So uh, they have not established a separation between the editor and the consumer of a spreadsheet, right? Most systems on Instagram, on Twitter, right? You have a mostly consumption-like interface, right? You have your feed. You are there to consume and do small interactions, small comments, likes, retweets, mostly have fun and, and learn. Right? Instagram, Twitter, all of the social media, and then when you want to create something, when you want to create a, you want to create a tweet or an Instagram post, then you get to a specialty interface where you can actually compose and images, you see the number of characters, you see your limit, you can have filters, you can have multiple things. So there's a clear separation between again, consumer and and creator. And weirdly, or I would say foolishly, uh, Microsoft and Google have not understood that this works this way. And so. They keep, so it's an all-editor interface. And so when you try to use Google Sheets on your mobile phone or Excel, like, it, it sucks, right? You have these screens, and you can only really see a few a few things at a the time. They don't really scale. And that's why we built our sharing system of, of features, which which we call live. And then when you share a live spreadsheet, and people just see the beautiful things, there's no cells to break, etc. So this is a particular way with which we, we, we justify to people to, to to use our products.
2: Yeah. I was talking to somebody else who's building, not in the spreadsheet space, but attacking something else in the Microsoft office suite of products. And they said that the, the mistake that a bunch of people make is that they try to make the whole thing a little bit better or easier to use, or they make the interface a little bit nicer, or they add different fonts or whatever. And what you really need to do is to be 10 times better at like one or two things that you either are 10 times better at, or just can't even do with the incumbent products. For you, I'm assuming kind of a big beachhead there is the ability to, one, share, as you mentioned, but then two, kind of pull in data. How else do you think about it from that perspective?
0: Yeah, those are absolutely the the key differentiators. I think we actually started out, uh, we also made some mistakes along the way. We thought that the most, the critical thing was going to be the automation and the data part, and then the sharing would come on top. It's actually the other way around. So people actually experience things. From a modernist point of view, so the collaboration and actually the liveness of data and the sharing of it in 2022, that is table stakes, like you have to have something that shares nicely, that you can show in your organization. That you can be proud of just And organizations move super fast. If you're not sharing your work, nobody cares. No <laughs> one will go into editor mode for your stuff. No one shares code. you know, like, ah, oh, look at my code. People share the prototypes. They yeah. share rapid deploys the, I, I do think that, 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 the world will move to this. I don't know if I answered this question well. Uh, Yeah, no, I, I I think you did. So
2: it it has to be a feature that they don't do, or they don't do particularly well. And so that's your kind of novel, novel innovation here is the ability to one, I guess, make it really easy to make things that you're proud of sharing, but then two, actually be able to share those things in a way that people can consume. And I guess splitting the kind of uh, consumer and creator
0: angle. uh, And and actually going back to that point, I think that why can't they compete? Uh, with us, I think that these two particular features are extremely time-consuming and complex to build. For example, let's say that Google Sheets now wants to add a marketplace of data or Microsoft to Excel, Excel, they would have to ship it to hundreds of millions of users and, you know, and building a feature like that is a tremendous cost that is not justified by the existence of a small player. So while they might think it's interesting, tell someone in the Microsoft world to go to Satya and, and ask for a hundred million to build a dark at a marketplace and maybe it's not the core focus and, and and maybe they will risk breaking the experience for other people i think because we built around that i think it's much easier for us to compete it is clearly a, a bifurcation in how you build the products on the UX side you have to be able to compromise you know we shows like we like the grid you can do everything in our grid which you can do on other grids but we're going to start with a small grid which we then extend as you need it Whereas Excel and, and Google Sheets start with this gigantic grid to have, actually make that change with irk and confuse and scare the corporate users, which they don't want to do. So again, in there, the, the challenge is not so, so much the engineering one, but it's the perception that they provide a solid, stable product uh, and that making these risky moves is not seen as, as, as desirable.
2: Yeah. yeah. there is in, in Google Sheets, I remember a few months ago, they changed where they like remove color button was in the color palette. So like, just to go yeah, back to like absolutely. basic and it freaked me out. I think I tweeted about it, that it was like kind of weird that, that just, it moved from the bottom of the palette to the top or, or vice versa. And that little tweak made me dislike my experience a little bit. So you're right. Once people are locked into a product, it's hard to change even minor things, let alone really big things.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I also noticed when they moved that they, they also are doing some good stuff. You no, know? certainly we look up to, to them and you know, some directional uh, sensing technical adoptions, right, how to implement new functions and how they, they, they look at the whole data problem.
2: When I started in investment banking, we had like a week of training on how to use Excel. Is the goal to like get that level of lock-in or to make it so easy to use that you don't need that kind of training? Yeah. So it's a very good question.
0: When I did my summer internship also in, in, i banking, uh, iBanking, or I think it was like we were buying banks in, 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 in a particular city in the US. And, and they, they made me go through the, Bloomberg and Excel deep training, And I had already been a consultant before at at, at McKinsey. I got taught some, some, some cool tricks, etc. But I think that that leaves mostly inside the VBA world and the Google Apps Scripts, that's how Google and Microsoft encode what being a pro of their platform means, and we reject this idea, right? So we do not have a scripting language. Everything has to be doable in either cells or point and click interfaces, right? We have this little wizard which you, which you click on, and then it opens up and it tells you how you build tables You just drag and drop things. And we, we just set up the functions for you and all of that crazy stuff. You don't actually have to know them. So I, I don't think that we will have this pull towards scripting people. So the crazy, esoteric guy who has the lock-in of your spreadsheet, who you don't want to screw up and who you go and consult and, and give offerings a couple of times a year. But we absolutely think that people will learn uh, a skill like roles and people will learn how to build things with us. I hope to see in the next couple of years, people saying like these job postings with roles, like just proficient, you know, data management role slash look or whatever, whatever it may be.
2: Yeah. I remember when I was trying to learn VBA, like some of the things that you would do are like, can I pull in the prices of my portfolio stocks and, and all of that kind of stuff. And now that just automatically happens, so hopefully I, the more and more of that you can replaced with something easy, the better for yep. everybody out there who wasted a lot of time trying to, to learn all of that stuff. You mentioned your, your background at, at McKinsey and buying banks. Like how did you end up coming to the wonderful world of, of spreadsheets? What was the path to get here?
0: Yeah, well, it, it, it's a pretty long story. I'm going to try to condense it into chapters, but the most remarkable thing about me is actually not me. It's my family. I'm from a very very large family. So I have 12 siblings and so it's, it is, you know, a very normal factoid, but a, one which I'm pretty proud of. And so we always lived in a pretty large family and we, we were middle class, so know we didn't have any, any kind of problem, but, but we also didn't have, you know, money for, you know, spurious things. Like I didn't get an allowance and stuff like that. So well, no shit. Yet, but 13 uh, uh, I, I, yeah, but kids <laughs> makes sense. Uh, and, and so, and so kids evolved in different ways uh, when subjected to, to, to different conditions from their peers. And the way I evolved was, uh, I, I guess, looking back, I became a bounty hunter. You know, so any cool project that paid some cash, summer or three classes or science projects, I would just go in. And even though I clearly from a very early age realized I'm I'm not best at anything, I could you know make my way through things just by sheer will of wanting to win and, and wanting to, to, to do something cool and, and and experience this coolness factor of winning or participating or whatever. And so, I, well, I think this is the first chapter this made me go into engineering university and and after i became a bit disappointed with my performance at classes and and also maybe just classes in general i started getting into projects and so i i was part of a team doing an onboard computing for a satellite and then i went to caltech and did some research on driverless cars doing some very very basic vision algorithms for the car to drive by itself by themselves in 2006 and seven then i went to mckinsey and it's like, what's the next step? And people say, ah, oh, you've got to get an MBA. And I was like, okay, sure, let's get an MBA. It seems like it's the next bounty. So I got an MBA and in the MBA, people actually say, I oh, no, the MBA, it's, you don't need it and it's only like this finance, uh, super close society of, of sorts. To me, it was actually just reading stories about other people, just essentially reading biographies of how people dealt with things. And it became clear that most businesses, not the extraordinary ones, but most businesses are are built by reasonable people, pretty reasonable assumptions, right? And I said, okay, maybe I can do one of those, right? And you had, you know, the bubble wrap, the bubble wrap case and, and the Volkswagen case. And I was like, okay, some of these are actually, you know, pretty cool. So I came back to Portugal after after the US, and I built my first startup, which was a cosmetics company, and then a sports booking platform, and then a food company. And, and throughout all of these, I, I've always been exposed to spreads and I always thought, always had this feeling that, you know, you, you, for example, in the e-commerce company, we downloaded the data from the suppliers on the products, then we prepared the stock and then we upload it to Magento, which was kind of like the Shopify at the time, right? Like, so if the spreadsheet is like the central, centralized piece, why isn't the spreadsheet actually the content, the the main piece, the trunk. And, and so this was a constant throughout all of my startups and jobs uh, until Actually, me and my co-founder, we started looking online, what people were searching for, Quora was, was just, was just growing then and there was also Stack Overflow and a bunch of other forums. And people were searching, how do I send an email from a spreadsheet? How do I, you know, get data from X? And how do I automate this? And how do I do that? I was like, maybe this is the future, just uh, layering this super uh, powerful editor that enables it to do more with this sharing layer than a community on top, right? These are the three. Levels where we play, like so. There's there has to be an awesome creator experience. There has to be a great audience experience. So you have to be able to share things well, and it has to be a superior sharing uh, document. And then there has to be a something that that connects everyone together. So you have to learn collectively. If you don't have other people like ex- creating cool products, this platform will probably die out. Right? Just like with Twitter. Twitter doesn't survive on on back end. Right? It survives on a couple thousand backends and, and other important people, you know, and Elon, well, Elon Musk would
2: and, say like, you know, 90% Elon, bots,
0: yeah. but <laughs> 90% bots, 1% creators and, and then directs and just. I was reading, reading the stuff.
2: I've never thought of spreadsheets really before as like a creative tool or as a community tool, but it really is. It's just like, I guess it was before more local community where I'd like go over to the person next to me and be like, all right, how the hell do I make this model work? Or like, what function did you use there? Like, can you remind me again exactly like when I use a pivot table? And so it makes sense that when you tap that into like a bigger network, people are just going to get better at it a lot
0: faster. Yes. I think one of the initial hypotheses which we tested and which we checked, which actually turned out to be correct, was most people did not learn spreadsheets in books or in forums or tutorials. They learned it from some other person in their company, some do's or do that in their company who was to create this file and just get thrown the file like, Fuck now now it just play around with and you screw it up. And then someone understands. says, I know, no, no, there's this dollar sign, which locks into columns and rows, And it's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, your brain starts adapting to these visual experiences. And I think that again, this is why we build community. We want to accelerate uh, because not everyone has experience of being next to an iBanker or a consultant who actually manages all of these projects. So I think that the more documents we create, the more stepping stones there will be between you uh, being a newbie and you becoming a pro. What percent of
2: users are creating something new versus taking a template off the shelf and then kind of modifying it? Do you have data on how
0: people do that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I have several little points on that. So most of our users start out with a template, more than 50% start out with a template, the community part. So this public sharing, we only started in December, is still pretty early, but it's already contributing, you know, to, to converts and, and there's a couple of spreadsheets with more than 5,000 people who've looked at the data and And then you duplicate it. So a couple hundred applications as well. I think we're just getting started there, but certainly more than half of the people try to build spreadsheets from a template angle, from a pre-prepared one by us or from a community one.
2: Yeah. It reminds me of like that Google stat that 10% of their searches or something on any given day are brand new searches, but 90% people are researching, which is a mind blowing stat, but 90% is people researching the same things over and over again. And so in a lot of cases, people are going to want to just take something off the shelf and then in some cases they want to do something that no one's ever done before and so you have to make i guess both of those things as easy as possible to-
0: yeah well i i really like the, the 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 10% number i think it's pretty high and- Makes me hopeful that, you know, people are still very creative. I, I search more than 10 times per day. So certainly one of them uh, on average would be a new search, which is, which is cool. I like I, this, this. Totally. It's, this I mean, some it's, comfort. It's, yeah. it's,
2: it's funny. Sometimes if I like think I'm saying something creative or funny on Twitter, before I do it, I'll search and there's like 500 people who've made the same joke that I thought was this fantastic new joke that ends up like just being, I guess we all saw the same thing and we all reacted to it the same way. So it is, it's a little refreshing. There's 10% out there every day. That's, that's totally new. And I pulled that number out of my memory, which is not the best, but it's somewhere around there, which is, which is crazy. Now I guess switching to this current, I I think as a tech podcaster, you have to ask about the current, current environment and like how you, how, how you change your plans and what you're thinking about. I know you've raised a bunch of money, but like how do you build in this in this environment?
0: This environment, you mean, twenty twenty two. This twenty twenty two, tech is dead. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we're adapting to it. So we're right now having conversations inside the comp as to how we adapt. Right. So our standard plan was to keep our current team around, uh, you know, sixty people and achieve maybe higher growth and then raise at some point in in early twenty twenty three. But this thing is certainly making us uh, think about how do we extend the runway? Do we raise earlier? Do we adapt the team? Do we do some change in here? Uh, For us, again, we are pretty early. We're not living off hyper growth inflated numbers or something like that. We are living on, we are building a complex technology piece and we have, like, you know, very encouraging traction. And so people are investing in us as a creator of a technology and how we've been progressing along that curve of. Technology to users, right, and this transfer. I, I think that it will still probably ha, have us reprioritize some projects, right, and, and and we will certainly hold off any big investments for now. We we look at it, you know, uh, with with some worry in what it might bring to the ecosystem, right? Because the US, I think, is still uh, pretty resilient in handling with the crisis, but but certainly in many many cities, tech is the big uh, employer and is the industry feeding all this money back into everything from again tech to the support roles in tech to the actual local economies like uh, houses and rents and restaurants and 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 everything and deliveries and whatever what have you and so this is what worries me it's actually the outside economy i think uh, whatever happens to technology you know, we will we will we'll, we'll find a way we'll reinvent ourselves we'll still be, be be building cool spreadsheets many years from now i think that what really worries me and What we should, as a society, be focusing on really what happens to the other people. And, you know, because at least in in Europe, you know, technology people, software engineers, etc. we make, you know, 3x, 5x, what other people around us make, uh, which is a pretty big multiple. And I think that comes with an extra added episode of, 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 at least for me. Internally, we will just uh, revisit all of the projects and see what's priority or not, and, and maybe adjust our runway a little bit.
2: That makes sense. I mean, uh, to, your, to your point, though, on on kind of the European economies, you're in, are you in Portugal as we as we speak? I know you're from Portugal. Are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. So Portugal, it seems like it's done over the past, you tell me how many years, but a really, really good job of kind of converting the economy over to tech. I know a lot of teams have engineering teams there or set up shop there, or now it's even becoming kind of like one of the hotbeds of crypto. What's been going on? Paint a, paint a picture for people who aren't familiar uh, with the Portugal tech scene. Awesome. So, uh, so
0: we do have a lot of companies interested here. We have a couple of unicorns, I think six or seven local unicorns by local created by Portuguese people with huge, huge footprints in here, even though they have international life and, and actually quite diverse, right? So we have actually a B2C company, which is the most astounding one, Farfetch. It's a luxury marketplace. You can buy your Louis Vuitton if, if this is your thing anywhere in the world. It's pretty successful. And we also have, you know, giants like Talkdesk and, and Feedzi at and, and OutSystems, which are more software tools or SaaS tools. Uh, and, and a bunch of other like Sword Health, it's a, it's a health company. They are just doing, you know, applying the, the digital treatment to physiotherapy, right? So that you can remotely recuperate from a hip replacement surgery or if you have back benefits. It's which incredible is, products. It, it flips the whole thing products. on the
2: head, right? Where like I saw a tweet today actually about Sword Health that they have a big, Uh, sales team, I think in Utah or something, Yes, but they're based in, in Portugal, so it's cool to see that flip.
0: Yeah. And and I guess the reasons why I think that it is a fact that, that that we have, and I think relatively to our relative to our uh, number of inhabitants per capita, probably highly dense in success stories. I think it boils down to a couple of factors. One of them is that it's cool to be in Portugal. You know, it is pretty sunny. It has a Californian vibe of sorts. It's also one of the safest countries that I know out there, and I've lived across the world. Murder statistics are extremely low. I don't know of robberies or or even this kind of of negative events and and, and violence. It is not commonplace at all. It's a city event, and when it happens, it hits major. And so I think th- those are pretty good. So families like living here, etc. We have a pretty strong engineering culture. So we pride ourselves on doing the hardest things, the hardest way, you know, (laughs) and and that, that certainly has had many disadvantages for hundreds of years, but then actually software did, well, this is perfect. You know, what are the hardest things? Like, can you do this in a more complex, exploratory, difficult way and learn with it for the future? Yes. And achieve a a (laughs) scale two years down the line. I think our mindset is, is, is very geared towards that. And so we we also have a lot of engineering universities uh, which are pretty good. So that uh, that that has also helped. And uh, and you know with the fact that the last uh, argument I would say would be we we don't have a lot of, uh, a big internal market. It's so possibly small and uh, people don't consume that ma- that much software. It's a B two B world. So we have to interna- internationalize by default. So we are born with a you know day one you know that the market's going to be the outside. Uh, yep. And so you don't go into the dynamics that maybe some of the Spanish or Italian or, or French startups do, which I no no know the local market, you know, I'll just grow the local markets for two or three years and then I'll expand. But then by the time you do that, it's going to be too late, right? And we just go for higher risk, higher return right off the bat. And, and I think that this has worked quite well.
2: I love it. My wife and I actually got engaged in, in Lisbon. It's also home to one of my favorite, I'm going mean, to botch the pronunciation, I'm sure, but Sudads are like the, you know, the kind of like. I regret in advance is one of my favorite concepts in the world that I don't think has a good English translation, but yeah, it's kind lovely.
0: of like a bad. it's kind of like a, a long for something past and, and it's, it's negative, it's bittersweet. So it's like a little bit negative, a little bit positive because you do miss something for, for a particular strength of, of emotion. You might miss, you know, a dog or you might miss a particular thing, which you lost, but bad so it's, it's very human in form. Uh, people say that there's no direct translation. I, I think you can explain it a little bit, but, but yeah, it's a pretty strong word. It's also a pretty nice place for people to get hitched. You know, there's also a, there's a huge industry of uh, weddings. People just come to Portugal to get wedding uh, to, to, to get a wedding. Completely, it's like a lot of cool places, great wine, inexpensive food. People love it in here.
2: Right? Hey, it's not hard to see. Do you hire? I mean, you said you have people all over the world. What's your work setup? Are there
0: local yeah. spots and then remote, or yeah. how do you do it? Perfect. Right now we are are remote, so we hire from practically everywhere, some minor exceptions. We do have two offices. Historically, we had an office in Porto and went to Berlin. Legal HQ is actually Berlin, which is where me and my co-founder were living. And then we did a small office there, which which does sales and marketing. So most of the people you talk to, I think would be be in, in Berlin. And then we set up this engineering office and product office in Porto. We have, again, engineers, products, uh, product managers, and designers, and the supports for that. And, and we grew out of here, but right now we know we have people from pretty much all over the world. We have a couple of people in the U S in Brazil, uh, India, any country you might think of probably have, uh, well, not a lot they're only 60, but, but we do have a lot of dispersed people.
2: Well, I'm daydreaming about the, the Porto experience, like I'm picturing, you know, working in Silicon Valley and like, of course it's productive because there's nothing to do in San Francisco and the bars close at like 3 PM in the afternoon. And it's like a generally like not super fun place. Sorry to the San Francisco listeners out there. The port- how do you get people to work? Like I would just want to be like out, outside enjoying the nice, nice weather, eating good meals, like doing all of those things. Like what is the, the kind of culture?
0: I would say the culture in Portugal is traditionally one of overwork. So uh, companies in, in Portugal make people overwork themselves. This is the tradition. People, you tend to the boss and if the boss leaves at 8pm, you leave at 8pm. Luckily or not so luckily in engineering and the startup world, things are far more relaxed and there's a lot more flexibility. The workday people do get up on the late side, most people. So, and, and then they work until a bit later. There's a lot of cultural stuff revolving around food and, and drinks. So you don't get a 10 minute lunch, you know, you do a one hour lunch and you will sit down and it, there's always a full beach and, and weirdly enough, you know, like engineers and product people and designer people, like they are used to, you know, having a beer or, or two or a bit of wine at lunch. They look like normal people, not like just uh, coding machines. And that, that, That's also pretty refreshing. And then people have a bunch of local activities, which revolve around like there's Porto has, it's a very small city because it's between, geographically, it's uh, stuck between two rivers and, and then the sea on, on, on the other side. And so people just go to the river or to see, walk around, bike around. It's it's pretty gorgeous here downtown. You know, there's a lot of bridges and there's a lot of, like the downtown scene is, is pretty nice That this is what uh, people do. All right. So I'm going to try to make the
2: case so, for, for, uh, for beers at lunch and wine at lunch here. Have you found anything about if people are more productive in the morning and more creative in the afternoon after one of those lunches? Or have you noticed anything different than maybe you'd expect if that weren't the case?
0: No, I've never thought of that. Uh, I know that I can't uh, take things at lunchtime, you know, like uh, I'm a lightweight person. If I drink one beer, that's it, like my afternoon is ruined. Uh, What what, what I found personally, my experience, is that a lot of the engineering uh, staff and product staff and design staff are people who wanna do something productive with their lives. They're typically not an entitled crowd, right? And so they're actually people who, you know, who have this culture, which in in Portugal revolves a lot around food and, and they are used to, you know, having this thing with their parents, grandparents, and and all this stuff. And so they end up being able to just take it. They're used to it. It's not like they they chose it out of being hip or something. This is what they, this is what they are. It's part of their identity. And it would be part of my identity too, if I could take it, but I just, you know, I'll, (laughs) I'll just die, you know, if I, if I drink glass of wine every day at lunch. So I'll just won't be productive.
2: Well, and if we try to bring it to the US, people would be doing shots at lunch and it just wouldn't, it, it wouldn't work quite the same way. It's probably better to keep it to the, the people who grew up with it. So I guess last question is what the best way for somebody listening to get started with roses, and this feels like a softball, like, but. What should people think about going on and building? And what is the best way to get started? Where can they find you all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, given that, that we are on, on a podcast and your podcast in particular, I, the coolest thing is just to go to rose.com slash community, right? And there you have all of these spreadsheets, which other people have created and just type a couple of search keywords, which are on top of your mind, maybe crypto, maybe you know, some analysis or some word which is on your mind. And then after you, you find something, just go inside that spreadsheet and play around with it. If you like it, click the duplicate button on the top right. End. And, uh, and you know, just copy the source code, the spreadsheet code, and, and play with it. And, and then just uh, try to make it better and publish it back again. There we go. I, I thought that was going to be the last one. And then you mentioned the
2: domain, which I wanted to ask you about. How'd you get rose.com? That is an incredible domain.
0: Thank you. It was a deep project that, that I was lucky enough uh, to do. You know, I think it's one of the things that we're honestly going to leave with me for the rest of my life, just doing a full scale rebrand with, with uh, great people. So we had dash dash, so D-A-S-H, D-A-S-H, which is supposed to illustrate the equal sign, you know, the two dashes. Nobody got that. <laughs> I that. people, But people mistyped it uh, uh, a lot. And so we felt like our ambition needed a better hope. And so we started by thinking, so what are spreadsheets? And so when you book a sale and when you book a host, there's probably some spreadsheet where you say. Now we're going to record that podcast to go back. So you Mm -hmm. have another line. And when you hire someone, you have another line. And when you, again, so everything's about having these roles. Roles really encode the movement of your business, right? We searched for roles and roles was available. And and we did this massive rebrand. We actually wrote a blog post around it. You know, uh, we had to buy it. It it cost $100,000. Not bad. $10,000. Yeah. So it's not bad. $110,000. And we hired a super cool agency in the US, Focus Lab, and and they help us, you know, navigate the whole problem. Of how do we rebrand? How do we create a visual image? and you know, a strategy for communication and, and other types of identity, you know, spoken and all kinds of positioning. And then we just ship it. You know, it was a six-month project, and that was one of the coolest things that, that I've ever done. You know, very, very cool.
2: I'm pandering probably, but it came out really well. There's a lot of sites that end up looking, I think, pretty similar. And it does have its own kind of like unique feel and vibe. And I think it gets the message across which is a good, you know, good time to tell people to go check out rose.com. If you're a not boring reader or listener who hasn't already, I don't think there's many people left, but if you haven't go check out rose.com, it is really fun. Go to rose.com slash community, play around with the templates. Mberto, thank you so much for, for doing this. It was fun.
0: Thank you, Paki. This was very fun. Your questions are, are, are great. Thank you very much. Super cool.
2: Thank you.